Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White and today I will be discussing the topic of musculoskeletal residuals. If you haven't heard of it, don't worry, I'll explain. So, what are residuals? Here's what they are and how we think about them. Residuals are the nagging leftovers that remain after an episode of rehabilitation. They represent the unachieved recovery that may or may not be acquired and which still has measurable impacts on the pain, function, and quality of life of our patients. Residuals are observed in nearly all categories of rehabilitation. They are so common, in fact, that most studies always show less than full patient recovery. In some cases, this is blamed on funding that limits the duration of studies to something less than that estimated to be necessary to achieve full recovery. Also, some insurance companies, probably most if not all, deem full recovery as unnecessary to achieve patient goals for discharge. In many minds, the residuals are considered so onerous a pursuit with little change over time versus relatively huge expense to change that the benefit versus risk of expense equation is hopelessly unbalanced against benefit. Thus, efforts at chasing finitely small amounts of recovery are deemed foolish. Still others maintain the idea that our current methods of treatment are imprecise, lack power, and are incapable of resolving complaints and restoring function in the vast majority of cases. By the way, you can read about much of this last example in numerous systematic reviews and meta-analysis studies, such as those you can find at the Cochrane Collaboration, PubMed, Pedro, and others, that abundantly communicate to us these realities. I will speak about this more in just a few moments. So, in short, most scenarios inform us that patients will just have to live with their residuals. However, this is not the only way to think about residuals. First, a little background. In my practice, I see a larger proportion of patients with chronic issues than either acute or subacute combined. My average patient has already visited two or three other rehabilitation providers before seeing me. The range is 2 to 10. They all have residuals. Concretely, residuals are things like, but not limited to, Deficits in active range of motion, muscular force production, endurance, neuromotor control, load tolerance, and increases in swelling, edema, or effusion. All are exceedingly common, as is residual pain at rest, which worsens with activity. These residuals have a corrosive effect on patients long term. They tend to get worse. I think of these kinds of residuals as clear and present risk factors for musculoskeletal deterioration. However, each can be addressed in such a way as to mitigate the risk. In some cases, the risks or risk will be erased altogether. For example, I see many patients with osteoarthritis of the knee. The vast majority have been to other practitioners who have treated the patient with techniques and programs that contained unhelpful components and contained potentially helpful components, but which were inappropriately applied. Of course, I recognize this represents a biased sample that excludes those who were appropriately treated and recovered without incident, so we assume. Usually, in the patients that make it to me, some recovery has already occurred, but full recovery has eluded them. They were discharged from rehab for generally one of three reasons. 
First, they were deemed by their treating therapist to have achieved maximum recovery. Or second, their physician cut them off for lack of progress and sent them to a surgeon or pain management. Or three, their insurance cut them off. In the first case, it was not unusual to see patients who had a dozen or more visits but had achieved a range of only about 20 to 50% recovery. Most improved far less than this. In the second case, the physician stepped in and pulled the plug. This can happen, by the way, for many reasons other than lack of progress in a patient. Sometimes, and this is a topic for another time, the patient has progressed well beyond expectation, and the referring physician still, and wrongly so, pulls the plug. In the third case, insurance cutoffs occurred because a predetermined maximum number of visits was achieved, and to acquire more, clinical evidence was required to demonstrate that progress had been made, but the therapist never submitted evidence to justify continued treatment. In the example I am describing, the patient with chronic knee OA, the nice thing to know is that the patient did demonstrate at least some signs of improvement in response to an overall failed treatment program. However, it is easy to believe that this is simply the maximum improvement that might be expected anyway for a variety of reasons, which include descriptions in the literature. Much of the cervical literature, for example, appears to consistently belittle conservative rehab in the care of peripheral joint injuries. Another reason is that some of the prevailing attitude may be related to limited experience of the treating therapist. To resolve some of these issues, it helps to separate treatment responses into a concise summary. I routinely question patients about past interventions to get an idea from their perspective about what worked and what didn't. From this information, it is possible to forensically reconstruct contents of the treatment cycle and distill what the most likely contributory actions and events were to stimulate improvement, as well as the detriments to improvement. From there, Designing a more specific recovery program is possible. A huge set of clues in this process therefore involves the patient answering three basic questions. First, what past treatment or treatments helped the most? Second, what past treatment or treatments seemed to be unhelpful or even harmful and stopped progress? Three, what residuals remain? With regard to residuals, we clinicians go on to quantify them. Maybe it's active range of motion, maybe it's localized strength, endurance, or both, or motor control deficits, swelling, or insufficient load tolerance, inadequate sleep, or a combination of all of the above, or even something else. Whatever it is, figure out what it is that is holding the patient back, retarding their recovery, and target that problem. Many times, in fact, most times I would say, it isn't just one thing, it is a combination of things, a fairly standard combination of things. In my world, it often boils down to an issue of dosing exposure to helpful activities and limiting exposure to harmful activities. I know, it sounds so simple, too simple. And it is. Patients are complicated. With an infinite seeming list of possible complaints and contributors, but most of these are distractions from the underlying problem. In the example of the patient with chronic knee OA, whom I mentioned earlier, she was in her 60s, underwent 12 weeks of therapy at a clinic with no meaningful change, and used up the majority of her easily accessed insurance benefits. 
Her problem, in reality, was not that her recovery was limited due to her age, the severity of her complaints, non-compliance with clinic treatments or homework, or the usual scapegoats, including psychological domains. Instead, her problem of little recovery, despite the effort put in, was one constrained by the rules of mechanobiology. Nothing more. What I mean is, the prior therapist's treatment included things that the patient's experience of actually doing suggested was of little or no benefit. In other words, doing what was recommended revealed it was not helpful. She was confused about why it was being done when it had no obvious observable effect, and a convincing explanatory rationale was not provided. From my perspective, what was potentially useful was underdosed in volume and overdosed on load, among many other problems. So I knew what to avoid, and I knew what to concentrate on. After six visits in my care with demonstrable progress, this patient's insurance cut her off. I called and wrote to them, explained the nature of her problem, documented her starting point with this chronic problem, the prior failed conservative treatment, and the success of her new program with me to date. Objective measurement data in my report gained us another six visits of the 18 I projected were necessary to resolve her issue. When we began, she had achieved at the prior clinic, by her estimate, less than 20% improvement in her condition and plateaued. By her admission, this was not enough to justify continuing at the other clinic. That was why she sought me out. After the six additional visits, she was again forced to stop her clinic visits. I wrote to her insurance again, spent several hours playing phone tag and engaging in conversations with low-level blockers, mid-level managers, then upper-level managers. I was able to convince them that it was less costly to finish the rehab and thereby reducing or eliminating her risk factors for relapse and worsening that it was than it was to bail on her physical therapy and pay for a more costly surgery and post-operative physical therapy in her near future. To put it simply, it was cheaper to pay for her rehab now to fix her problem than to pay for her surgery later, after which she would still need PT anyway. That was why, after all, she embarked on physical therapy in the first place, to hopefully avoid surgery. We completed her physical therapy with 21 visits over about three months. The extra visits were predicted as a consequence of the interruption in treatment, which was also explained and ultimately documented. Cartilage requires ongoing appropriate stimulus, and removing it risks losing some beneficial gains, plus a lag time exists to re-stimulate chondrogenesis after resumption of the complete rehab program if the interval between treatments is prolonged. So, what did she get for her efforts? To put this in perspective, her residuals for six years of chronic knee pain related to OA included the following a lower extremity function score of 20%. A subdomain of the patient-specific function score for stair climbing was zero via a reciprocating normal gait. She could do one step at a time, raising and lowering with a good leg and using a handrail, but if no handrail was present, she was unable to navigate stairs unless her husband assisted her. For gardening, she was also a zero, mowing her lawn, zero. Walking distances and speeds were around 25% of normal. Pain was 2 to 3 at rest, and these scales are 0 to 10, by the way, for this portion. Rising quickly, 
to a six or seven with activity and was punctuated by severe spikes of pain to eight or nine when trying to climb stairs, walk fast, pivot, or carry loads while walking. Her global function was rated as a four out of 10, so 60% impaired. And her quality of life was a five out of 10, so 50% impaired. MRI indicated areas of denuded chondral surfaces, medial greater than lateral, and crepitus was present with all movements of the knee, and she had two and a half centimeters of knee effusion compared to the opposite and asymptomatic side. Her load tolerance for stair climbing was 18%, walking at a self-selected pace of 1.2 miles per hour for six minutes, maxed her out, that's about 140 yards. A recent review of 21 studies by Hurley and colleagues entitled Exercise Interventions and Patient Beliefs for People with Hip, Knee, or Hip and Knee Osteoarthritis, a mixed methods review, appeared in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, 2018, issue number four. This report looked at exercise interventions and outcomes in patients with knee and hip OA, and it revealed some interesting and important findings. Patients and studies they examined had to be at least 45 years of age. Check, my patient was older, so she exceeded the minimum criteria. They must have at least clinically diagnosed OA. Check for her. They must be enrolled in land-based or aquatic exercises. Check, 20 studies were land-based. And a separate review by the Cochrane Group examined aquatic exercises too and produced about the same result as this particular study. Also, exercises should follow principles of treatment recommendations for this population. Check. Which does allow, by the way, for some variability. And this is key, particularly because of how we select and dose interventions. And additionally, all included studies had to report on pain, function, and some aspect of quality of life. There were other things, but these are the main highlights. So, what results did they show? This might give us some sense of what is possible. I've rescaled their data to fit a 0 to 10 rating, and they showed that on average, pain decreased 0.6 points over 45 weeks, so 6 tenths of a point in 45 weeks. Function improved 0.56 points over 41 weeks, and keep in mind, again, this is a 0 to 10 rating scale. Quality of life improved 0.79 over 35 weeks. All of these results are statistically significant. It may be argued whether or not the results are practically meaningful, but the authors concluded that the results were meaningful. Several of the studies also included qualitative analysis that indicated most patients were pleased with almost any measurable improvement that resulted from their self-efficacy. Now, back to the question of my patient. Her residuals did in fact all improve. Her pain at rest went to zero. That's six times greater improvement than the study reports. Pain with activity, including stair climbing, gardening, mowing her lawn, was also a zero, and that represents a 14 times greater improvement than the study comparison. And the severe shooting pain that she was having, it went to zero, and that represents an 18 times greater improvement than might be expected based on studies. She was able to walk pain-free for 40 minutes at 2.5 miles an hour. That was her self-selected pace after recovery. That's 2,933 yards, or 21 times her starting level. The knee effusion went away. Her knee load tolerance improved to 100%. She rated her global recovery as 100%. 
Her physical examination findings placed her at 98 to 95% improved depending on what domain was examined. Accounting for measurement error, these values are all within allowable margins and no longer presented as risk factors. Her psychology of recovery matched her physiology of recovery, as did her clinic plus real-world performance tests. Even better, one, two, three, and six-year follow-ups all indicated that this patient maintained her improvements. To compare and contrast with the published literature, this was clearly a win that hit it way out of the park. This is not an isolated example, either. It represents what is achievable when residuals are properly addressed. This is made possible by understanding the mechanobiological needs of the problem and matching them with the needs of the patient. This is, in many cases, revealed by the nature of the residuals that are present when patients who have failed treatment elsewhere come to see me. These methods can be learned and applied to other patients. We have done it in my clinic on a regular basis for decades. Contrast this with high-level athletes at the college and professional level. Teams of experts are present to consult and be directly involved in the rehab process and decisions about return to play. The kind of data and analysis that is available often, but not always, exceeds that which most working clinicians have at their disposal. It is increasingly true that when players are injured, much effort is put into crafting a customized rehabilitation program for their needs. And even better, much active movement data and force data is collected in real time with devices and tools that the average clinician might drool over if they are data-oriented. And, at least to a large degree, they should be. Data informs our decision process, but it does not act as the sole driver. That still requires clinical judgment. Even so, many players still return to sports with unacceptably high residuals. They bounce on and off the injury list. And just because they return to sports in two weeks for problems that would sideline typical mortals for a month or more doesn't mean that they should. Nonetheless, there is something to be said about all the effort to prevent injury and optimize return to activity. A new article released ahead of print and set to appear in an upcoming issue of the JOSPT paints a clear picture of the lingering effects of residuals titled, Youth with a Sport-Related Knee Injury Exhibits Significant and Persistent Knee-Related Quality of Life Deficits at 12 Months Follow-Up Compared to Uninjured Peers. It examined high school athletes with knee injuries. What they found was that the effect of injury persisted over the course of the year-long study period. At various time points along the way, they observed improvements in things like pain, activity level, activity participation, strength, fear of re-injury, and quality of life. The largest cohort, over half of the study subjects, had suffered ACL injuries, and most of them had subsequent surgical repair. The second largest cohort suffered collateral or other ligament damage, and the third largest cohort suffered meniscal injuries, and a smaller cohort had mixed injuries. The intermittent and constant OA pain at initial visits scored a mean of 3.3 points, at six months had reduced to one, and at 12 months was 0.4. 
The extensor torque peaked at 1.913 newton meters per kilogram in the uninjured comparison group and improved in the injured group from a baseline of 72% of this norm to 89% at six months, then 93% at two months. Function scores based on the MVPA or moderate to vigorous physical activity expressed in minutes per week was at baseline 75% of normal, then 60% at six months, and 76% at 12 months. Thus, overall mean function was only 70%, with a large dip halfway through the follow-up period, and this is mostly related to the post-op surgical period for the ACL repairs. However, during this time, the quality of life score derived from a subset of the Coup score and rescaled here improved from 3.8 initially to 5.3, then 6.9. So high school athletes with the injuries accrue residuals as follows. Pain after one year, 4% deficit. Knee extensor torque, 7% deficit. Function for moderate to vigorous activity, 24% deficit. Quality of life, 31% deficit. This demonstrates significant incomplete recovery in several different domains of interest. And this is at the end of the 12-month observation period. In the case of pro athletes with clear-cut goals of resuming 100% of expected sports-related function with, hopefully, minimized risks, precise measurements that are meaningful and monitored are essential. The same is true of high school athletes or any other population with neuromusculoskeletal injuries. Risks we can observe as residuals. They can and should be addressed. Some of the main takeaways about residuals. First, residuals are the nagging leftovers that remain after an episode of rehabilitation. They are the fractional remains of pain, disability, and loss of quality of life, range of motion, strength, load tolerance, etc., that lurks after the end of many physical therapy episodes of care or after a phase of treatment. Second, study designs almost by default leave some recovery that is possible on the table. Those are residuals. Judging realistically achievable outcomes when looking at these kinds of studies might leave one with a false impression of what is possible. Third, insurance companies have abundantly published that achieving full recovery is not only not possible, but even not desirable, as the patients ought to be able to achieve additional recovery on their own while following a well-designed home program. That's from their perspective, the insurance perspective. Which makes me wonder, have they seen the compliance rates? This is a kind of built-into-the-system guarantee for residuals to exist. Fourth, in return to sports or work, but especially pro sports with huge amounts of money on the line, teams of support personnel are tasked with making as certain as possible the athlete has little to no meaningful residuals. They need to know, ideally, whether or not the athlete is fully prepared to return to their sport. They seek to minimize residuals. Fifth, in return to activities for anyone other than in pro sports, it is also still a good idea to seek to minimize residuals. Six, residuals represent risk factors. This means they may be predictive of future inability to maintain conditioning. They may lead to deterioration or even outright injury. Seventh, the less 
comprehensive and precise your patient examinations are, the more likely you are to miss important residuals. And eight, understanding residuals presents an opportunity to refine our delivery of care to optimize patient recovery across multiple domains of interest. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening. And as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.